Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon. I'm here with my colleague, Sarah Burns, who is a new attorney with NFP, and we're so excited to have her aboard, and this is her debut on the podcast with us. So welcome, Sarah. Last podcast, we discussed mental health parity litigation. We refer to that as MAPIA, uh, as the acronym to describe that law of mental health parity. And we talked about enforcement trends during that last episode. That was Suzanne Spradley and Patrick Myers. But then the Ninth Circuit, after that, went ahead and overturned a case called WIT versus United Behavioral Health, or UBH. And that occurred on March 22nd, just a week ago. And so Sarah, with her litigation background, was kind enough to prepare some thoughts on this case. And WIT case uh, was a big case. But Sarah, just give us an overview of what does this case mean for MAPIA and mental health parity? Yeah, thanks, Chase, and thanks for the the kind introduction. Um, So looking at WIT, looking at this recent Ninth Circuit ruling, in short, I don't think it changes much for parity, and we'll get into it more in a minute, but at a high level, WIT versus UBH was a 2019 class action decision out of a federal court in California, and that court found that UBH had wrongfully denied a series of mental health treatment claims for years. Um, And then the court ordered reprocessing of over 60,000 claims there. So while WIT was widely considered a landmark case uh, for plaintiffs trying to access mental health benefits, and it's certainly a blow to those families that may have had to pay out of pocket for denied claims, I think it's important to look beyond the headlines and understand what this ruling changes but really more accurately what it doesn't change about MAPIA litigation and compliance. Um, You know, we've come really far with parity enforcement even since 2019 when when the lower court with decision was decided. And in my opinion, this appeals court decision doesn't walk back that progress. First, this decision in no way changes the MAPIA comparative analysis compliance obligations. That's the documentation requirement introduced with the Consolidated Consolidated Appropriations Act, the CAA, it's a mouthful, of 2021. Um, Since then, the DOL has essentially been screaming from the rooftops that parity enforcement is a priority. They've even hired more investigators, and I think they're going to continue to do so. And as I know was discussed in the previous episode, the DOL reported to Congress in January of this year that in the first batch of plans they investigated, all had parity compliance problems. So the DOL is gonna continue heavy enforcement efforts there and hopefully issue more guidance to plan sponsors this year. Um, Of course, if there are any updates, we'll report on them. Mm -hmm. But but then second, I don't think parity even as litigation risk is going away based on this decision. Uh, For sure, the strategy of how these cases are argued will change, but the plaintiff's bar will adjust there. I expect that these types of cases will ramp up this year and into next. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for that background. And I'm glad you talked a little bit about the CAA and that comparative analysis. Mm -hmm. That's where 
employers' minds have been most recently uh, when we when we're talking about PIA mental health parity and that idea that they have to produce that documentation specifically to show their compliance, right? Particularly with uh, non-qualitative treatment limitations. And so as I say that NQTL, um, that's a good segue to kind of, before we get into the decision itself of this WIT case, can we pause and sort of review what MAPI is all about at a high level? Yeah, yeah, it's complicated. And of course there are nuances to the law, but it essentially requires a group health plan covering mental health and substance use disorder benefits. I'm just gonna say for shorthand mental health that they cover those benefits on par with medical surgical benefits, which we refer to as med surge. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are two types of limitations that the law looks at, as you said, Chase, quantitative and non-quantitative. So quantitative, that's those are the limitations that can be, that are expressed numerically in the plan terms. So they're easy to see and they're easy to compare for parity, um, things like copays, visit limits, but non-quantitative treatment limitations and QTLs they can't be expressed numerically. And those are things like exclusions. Um, a common exclusion is wilderness therapy or ABA therapy. Another NQTL, common NQTL is prior authorization requirements, meaning the requirement to get pre-approval before treatment starts. So when looking at these limitations, it's all about the comparison between the two sides, between the mental health side and the medical surgical side. I think it, it's important to note that parity doesn't mean no limitations. It's just that any limitations, they must be comparable to and applied no more stringently than the medical surgical side. And it also doesn't mean that mental health claims can't be denied. They can be denied just like medical surgical claims are denied all the time. But any guidelines um, that the mental health denials are based on cannot be more restrictive than those guidelines the medical surgical uh, denials are based on. All right, so that's super helpful to understand going into that, uh, this discussion on this WIT case. Um, it doesn't mean you have to have all the mental health benefits, right? It doesn't, it's not a requirement to cover every single mental health or substance use uh, benefit. It's just to keep them on par with or better than and make sure that they're treated the same as the medical side. Exactly. Uh, in the administration and in the everything else. So moving back to WIT, and uh, the reason the name WIT there is because that's the plaintiff's name, right? David yes. Witt, I believe. One of the plaintiffs, yes. Yeah, so that's why we keep referring to that. And the name of the case is the name of the plaintiff. But moving back to the WIT case, the lower court decision uh, was widely reported on and uh, a court ordering that reprocessing of 60,000 claims that you mentioned, that sounds like a massive undertaking. So. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about the district court or the original, and then we'll get to the appeal that just uh, occurred recently. Sure. So it was a huge ruling back in 2019, but it wasn't directly about MAPIA. And again, I think that's what's getting lost in the headlines. Rather, the ruling was about ERISA and the wide authority that plan administrators can have in interpreting the plan terms when the plan documents grant them that power. So just to briefly review, ERISA is the federal law that governs most employer-sponsored health plans. Um, essentially, it functions to protect benefits that are promised in a plan document. So the plan document governs, the terms of the plan governs ERISA disputes. In WIP, uh, and the case was originally filed in 2014, the plaintiffs there claimed that UBH's coverage guidelines were more restrictive than what the plan promised. 
They argued that the plan required coverage of treatment consistent with, quote, generally accepted standards of care. And that was a matter of interpreting UBH's plan language, which may have not been crystal clear, but that generally accepted standards of care benchmark, it's not something written into MAPIA. It was particular to UBH's plan language. Hmm. So the district court there, the first step they took was to agree with the plaintiff's interpretation of the plan. And once they agreed with the plaintiff's interpretation of the plan, they went in to examine the coverage guidelines. Um, a 10-day bench trial was held, which is really unusual in ERISA cases, but the court considered a lot of detailed expert witness testimony really dug in, and it found that the guidelines were inconsistent with that standard um, because they focused on covering acute symptoms for crisis stabilization. Then once the member was stabilized, the guidelines would drop coverage of ongoing treatment at a lower level of care. So they were overly restrictive. Hmm. So I would say, you know, the WIT decision, its significance, it was really in its criticism of UBH's guidelines because it did take so much evidence. Um, but the decision was tied to an interpretation of that plan promise, UBH's plan promise to cover treatment with generally accepted standards of care, again, not tied to MAPIA. Okay, so it was more related to how UBH had written their plan document, how they had adopted that, and, and then how they were applying it to this particular situation. Exactly. Um, okay, so this also shows the duration that it takes to work things through the court, right? Originally, oh, for sure. Yeah. 14, and then not a decision until 2019. Um, and then obviously, this was appealed by uh, UBH. And mm -hmm. that the Ninth Circuit, uh, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals weighed in last week. Their opinion actually is fairly short, only seven pages, which is kind of uh, short compared to the district court, which I understand was over 100 pages. Yes. So that's interesting. But what was the Ninth Circuit's take on this and what was their basis sort of for overturning what the district court said? Yeah. So the Ninth Circuit, they issued a brief op opinion, and that's reflected in the fact that they didn't get into the district court's factual findings. It was just a very simple legal analysis. They found that the district court's legal analysis of the plan was off because the district court, according to the Ninth Circuit, substituted its own interpretation of the plan that required that the plan required coverage of all treatment consistent with that generally accepted standards of care. So they, the district court substituted its, its interpretation there for UBH's interpretation that the plan did not require all of this coverage. And it's complicated, which is why I'm struggling with expressing it a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but the, uh, the nine said that UBH's interpretation of the plan, it wasn't totally unreasonable and therefore it's, it has to stand. The district court should never have dived into looking at UBH's coverage guidelines. They should never have held that bench trial and, and taken that with those witnesses' testimony. And that's because the plan document itself gave UBH discretionary authority to interpret the plan term. So again, an ERISA case and the plan document governs. Um, but yeah, I see this ruling as focused on UBH's plan language. If we go more broadly, it's how courts must, must approach plan interpretation under ERISA. It's not a ruling on MAPIA. There's no mental health to med surge comparison here. Um, 
So again, it's a blow to plaintiffs challenging benefit denials generally. And I think it speaks to the power of reserving discretion in the plan terms, but it doesn't even mean that UBH is off the hook for other potential parity problems in the past. Some of which were called out by the DOL in a settlement late last year. And I think we've discussed this before, um, but those related to flagging mental health claims for review more frequently than medical surgical claims, and then other parity problems in applying unequal reimbursement rates. And you know, this doesn't even change ERISA. The ninth is citing to really well-established case law. That's when the plan document, again, grants discretion to the plan administrator. A court needs to defer to the plan administrator, even where the reviewing judge doesn't agree with how the plan was interpreted. Okay. So some interesting points there on ERISA versus MAPIA. Is it fair to say that the reason this came up and the reason maybe it was raised as an issue under MAPIA is because the benefits that were being discussed or challenged by the plaintiffs were mental health benefits? Yeah, absolutely. And I think so, especially early on with, when these mental health, claim, mental health parity claims were being brought, it wasn't so clear as to how they could be brought because there's no separate pri private right of action in MAPIA statute. It has to right. kind of link to ERISA. So the question of how that would play out exactly, I think there was some fumbling a bit early on. Right, okay. But here, as you describe it, it's the court's ruling is really based on an ERISA term relying back on plan interpretation. And uh, but, but looking at MAPIA, Mm -hmm. um, what impact, if any, do you think this ruling has on the risk of mental health claim litigation for group health plans? Sure. So, yeah, I don't think the ninth Swift decision wipes out the growing risk of mental health claim litigation for group health plans at all. Um, since then, many other successful ERISA linked with MAPIA litigation avenues have emerged. Benefit exclusions have been a big problem. So, for example, there was a recent ruling from the First Circuit, which was NRV Raytheon, and that concerned the Raytheon plan's denial of speech therapy to treat a child's autism spectrum disorder. It's a complicated case, but briefly, the Raytheon plan, which was administered by United, the plan denied speech therapy claims on the basis that all, quote, non-restorative services are excluded in the plan. So for this child, the ABA speech therapy was to help him gain speech, not to restore speech that was lost. Hmm. The district court in that case, again, the lower court, the trial court, accepted Raytheon's explanation that the plan didn't violate MAPIA because the non-restorative exclusion is not so narrowly written in the plan to apply only to mental health treatment. It applies to each side equally, or at least as it's written in the plan, it's supposed to. So the district court accepted this ruled for Raytheon in a motion to dismiss, which is an early stage in the litigation, um, and essentially threw out the case. But the plaintiffs appealed, as <laughs> uh, where parties lose, they typically do. Um, and then on appeal, the First Circuit found that the case shouldn't have been thrown out, that the plaintiff actually had a good argument or a possible argument that the non-restorative exclusion at issue, though it wasn't so narrowly written in the plan terms, was in United's actual practice only applied to mental health claims. So there's a, a comparison problem there. Mm. Um, and the First Circuit went back and allowed the case to proceed. It still has to play out, but the First Circuit found that there were good arguments on both sides. So I think the NR case is also a good illustration of how some MAPIA violations may be hidden 
from self-insured employers or anyone looking at the plan document because they actually only play out in the TPA's claims handling process, even though the plan terms on their face seem okay as applied, you know, there can be a problem. And just an important note, the DOL filed an amicus brief, which is a friend of the court brief in NR supporting the plaintiff's ability to bring a lawsuit claiming a MAPIA violation under ERISA. They didn't need to cite wit in, the, in their brief for the legal authority because it's given in the statute. Okay. Yeah. So that's um, an important thought too, that you mentioned sort of on its face versus in operation, right? We see that with other laws like non-discrimination and, and uh, claims processing here is kind of where you're talking about maybe a difference where a plan might be actually applying the limits differently, even though if you were to just read through a plan document or read through benefit guides or whatever is being communicated to employees, it might appear that everything is equal. Mm-hmm. So those are uh, important things to consider. What's the takeaway for employer plan sponsors from these cases and, and from WIT in particular? Yeah, so the WIT ruling just from last week, it doesn't change MAPIA compliance obligations at all because it's not really about MAPIA, it's about ERISA. It relies on well-established ERISA case law, not something new. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, MAPIA compliance remains a DOL priority. Plan sponsors, especially self-insured, they need to confirm that the comparative analysis has been completed. And and again, I know we discussed this in previous guidance, but just as a reminder, the comparative analysis, it's a relatively new requirement, so it may not be addressed in existing administrative service agreements with TPAs. I think it's a good idea. It's it's really a must to discuss this with TPAs at renewal. that they take the responsibility for completing the comparative analysis because they're the TPAs in the better place to do so, having the claims administrative data um, to discuss how to remedy any plan design issues that emerge, and then also to discuss any experience they've had so far with DOL audits. Um, another thing to remember is the timely disclosures to participants are required, and there are penalties if disclosures aren't made within 30 days. So that's an ERISA document disclosure, but it includes the comparative analysis. So you want to confirm that the TPA or whoever is handling the comparative analysis is going to do so on request. Um, And then just one final misunderstanding that I've been hearing about on MAPIA compliance, I think it's important to touch on. So looking for red flags in the plan, just scanning the plan for potential problems like exclusions or stricter prior authorizations, that's a good place to start, but you really need to take it further. Um, You need the information on on the comparisons or information for comparisons on how claims are approved, how claims are denied, how networks are formed, how providers are reimbursed. And again, the NR case I brought it up because I think it's a good example of this. On the face of the plan, there seems like there's no parity issues, but when you look at the claims data, there might be one there. Yeah, and those are such important takeaways there, Sarah. Thanks for mentioning all of those. And just really illustrates the struggle that we've seen our clients and employers all across the country as I've talked to uh, different industry groups and um, just the challenge of trying to engage uh, TPAs and learn about um, you know, just getting that basic understanding of what you're even looking for, 
And then the information really that is needed to complete that analysis is usually in the hands of the carrier or the TPA. Mm -hmm. So it really has been a struggle. We've seen some TPAs and carriers start to come around a little bit, trying to uh, respond and be helpful. Um, we've helped clients engage their TPA, you know, help them uh, draft some email communication or something to say, hey, this is a big deal. We know we as the employer are on the line, uh, but we need your help. Uh, please help us to, to do this. And then the other part I wanted to mention is we are starting to vet out some vendors that might be helpful. Again, the same challenge, even if we find vendors that can do good products and, and are, are you know, easy to work with, it still becomes a, a game of engaging the TPA and carriers because the information, your reports, your analysis, even if you have somebody assisting you and the vendors might, might get more comfortable with that, your reports are only as good as the information that you are getting. Exactly. So that's, that's the biggest challenge that we've seen. Uh, but Sarah, thanks so much for summarizing the, the recent WIT ruling and the uh, NR case and sort of applying those to um, MAPIA compliance and ERISA compliance. This has been uh, very helpful. Um, yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, anything else as we close here? No, I think we, we touched on the high points. Um, yeah, I could talk about parity for hours. So um, <laughs> my pleasure to be here today. Yeah, thank you so much. And thanks everybody for joining us. As we like to say, that's a wrap. See you next time.